You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Hello, kitties, and welcome to my world. I would come over and say hello to you, but it's just as easy for you to come to me. Yes, yes, come in. You've come to the right place. This is where you'll learn everything there is to know about your furry feline friends. I'm talking about cats. Yes, I know. We are positively perfect pets. What do you mean I have attitude? Why, of course I do. I'm a cat. It's called Catitude. As I was saying, this show is all about cats. Cats and, um, oh yes, uh, cats. So let me introduce you to my accomplice, I mean assistant and host of Catitude, Tom Doc. Okay, Tom, tell them how wonderful we cats are. It's okay, you have my permission. Hello again and welcome back to the Catitude channel on Pet Life Radio. I am your host, Tom Doc, and believe me, I am very happy to be here again today talking with you about all the different aspects of our feline friends. You know, it is absolutely wonderful to love our feline friends, but for me, teaching and educating cat owners about how we can take care of our cats more effectively and keep them healthier is really a strong passion of mine, and I hope that you've realized that as you listen to the shows. And of course, today we are going to be talking about some purebred cats again, and believe it or not, we're almost getting to the end of the breed list. We've gone through quite a few. We've got two breeds to talk about today. We'll be talking about Asakats and Singapuras. And uh, just a little preview of our trivia question. I'm going to be asking what breed figured significantly in the development of both the Asakats and Singapuras. And we'll give you that answer after we take our first break. But I wanted to also uh, talk a little bit today about what's going on with cats in the news. And last Friday, which was March 27th of 2009, the Catalyst Council announced the top 10 cat-friendly cities in the United States. Now, they were all down in Phoenix, Arizona for the American Animal Hospital Association's annual conference. And if you're not familiar with AHA, A-A-H-A, Definitely take a look um, at AHA. You can go to ahanet.org, or you can go to their consumer site, which is healthypet.com. And definitely want to learn about AHA. They're a wonderful accrediting organization, and they really help to ensure that your veterinarian is offering the very best and the very latest for your best friends, for your four-legged best friends. Well, anyway, getting back to these top 10 cities, the Catalyst Council, which is a recently formed organization, decided that they would announce these cities, and they looked at, basically, how many people own cats um, as a whole in the city, what's the level of veterinary care, is microchipping required, how many people do microchip, and local cat-friendly ordinances. Now, I'm not sure what those were. I'll certainly have to find out from the Catalyst Council how you have a cat-friendly ordinance. But uh, anyway, there were 10 cities, and these are in no particular order that I'm aware of, but the cities named included Tampa, Phoenix, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, Denver, Boston, Seattle, San Diego, Atlanta, and Minneapolis. So congratulations to those 10 cities. You are the Catalyst 2009 Top 10 Cat-Friendly Cities. And just also to let you know, there was an honorable mention for Ithaca, New York. They got an honorable mention because they are the home of the Cornell Feline Health Center, which, of course, also does a very good job of educating the public about their kitties and the health. And, of course, we all know that education is truly the key in understanding how our cats get on through this world. 
All right then, so I told you that we wanted to talk briefly about two breeds of cats today, the Asakats and Singapuras, and you know, we always talk about where did these breeds come from, and there is one breed of cat that more than likely, and this is controversial, more than likely figured into the development of both of these breeds. So for our trivia question today, what breed of cat was instrumental in developing both Asakats and Singapuras? And I will give you the answer when we come back right after these messages from our sponsors. Do I hear a can being opened? I believe I smell tuna! Catitude will return after these messages. That should give me enough time to investigate what's going on in the kitchen. Don't have a hissy fit. We'll be right back. Tired of wasting money on giant boxes of litter that don't work and don't last? Switch to World's Best Cat Litter, the only litter with concentrated power. So even a small bag lasts one cat 30 days. Outstanding odor control, quick clumping, lightweight. It's even flushable. World's best cat litter. Everything else is just litter. Find it near you at www.itsnotjustlitter.com. That's www.itsnotjustlitter.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. How dare they open a can of tuna and make a sandwich out of it? I can see why some of my celebrity pals prefer lasagna. Well, anyway, I did manage to grab myself the canary while I was in there. Quiet, bird. We're going to hear the rest of my show, Catitude. If you behave, I may not eat you. Until later. Okay, Tom, you may continue. And we are back on the Catitude Channel here at Pet Life Radio. And this, again, is Tom Doc, just in case you forgot during the little break that we had there. But uh, we were talking about the Catalyst Council, and I wanted to just bring up a few more important facts that they are striving to educate all pet-owning members of the United States about. And that, of course, is that cats outnumber dogs by nearly 10 million among the pet-owning public. I think the latest numbers, which are from 2007, says there's about 81.7 million cats versus 72 million dogs. So, obviously, you've got almost a 10 million increase right there, a 10 million um, greater number of cats that are out there in the cat-owning public. And of course, we knew that already because cats are absolutely wonderful. But the sad thing is that cats are more likely to be given up to shelters or actually, a lot of times, they're just more likely to be let go out in the wild because they do such a great job of taking care of themselves. And as someone who has worked in shelters in the past, a lot of times it can be very difficult to adopt any of these adult cats out um, unless they're already spayed and neutered, unless they're already declawed a lot of times. And again, we won't get into the controversy surrounding declawing at this point in time. We'll do that on another show. But that's what people come into shelters looking for. They want a cat that basically they can take home and they don't have to worry about anymore because that's how we view cats. You know, they just take care of themselves. And if we do all the medical stuff up front, we don't have to worry about it. Well, we know that's not true. And we really need to get them in to see our veterinarians. I believe that um, they are less likely. I don't know. I think 11% less likely to go into the veterinary office and owner is less likely to take them in than their dog cousins. So we certainly want to make sure that we are getting them in. And the Catalyst Council is doing a great job. They're recently formed, and I'm very excited. A friend of mine, Dr. Jane Brunt, who is 
the executive director of the Catalyst Council, is also one of the Veterinary News Network reporters, and I'm very happy that she sent me this information about the top 10 cities. So it's truly all about the cat. That's what this show's about, and also it's all about the cat campaign from the Catalyst Council. All right, so I know that you have just been dying to figure out which breed figures so prominently in the Aussie cat and the Singapura genetics and in their background. Well, that breed is the Abyssinian. And if you remember, we talked about Abyssinians quite a ways back, and we talked about how they are one form of a tabby cat. Now, let's back up a little bit, several shows. If you remember, we've talked about genetics before. All cats are genetically tabbies, but a lot of cats, if you think about our Siamese and our self-colored cats, do a very good job of masking that phenotypically. In other words, we don't see the tabby markings quite as well unless we've got a really strong light or maybe we're paying attention to them when they're kittens. But genetically, uh, from their genotype, all cats are genetically tabbies. And the Abyssinian is that ticked version. In other words, it's just got the little coloring on the end so kind of like a rabbit almost if you can imagine the coloration of a rabbit or wild rabbit and how they look that's kind of the abyssinian and remember abbeys were called the rabbit cat for quite a long time well abbeys were very predominant in the development of our first breed today and that is the asa cat now the asa cat is one of the breeds of spotted cats uh, we've talked about a couple of the other ones before we've talked about egyptian mouse and we've talked about bengal cats and how they were developed um, remember the egyptian mouse was the only naturally occurring breed of spotted cat well i did a little more research and there actually are a couple other natural breeds there's one that's in bahrain which of course is over in um, the middle east and it's called the baharini dilmun cat it's a spotted variety and unless you live in bahrain it's barely known outside its country and so we definitely would not have um, heard about it here and supposedly this cat is um, in danger of extinction really because it keeps breeding with Persian cats that have been abandoned there and you know again at different culture a lot of people don't have the same feelings about their cats as we do here uh, in the western world and so a lot of these Persian cats that were bought because they're such cute kittens are just pretty much turned out to take care of themselves um, the this little Dilmun cat is kind of semi-foreign in conformation, so it doesn't look like a big stocky Persian. looks more like closer to a Siamese type of oriental type of body conformation. And supposedly they have evolved to really thrive in the extremely high summer temperatures. So that was one of them. And then the Canaan cat is another one that is being developed in Germany right now. It's supposed to look like a, um, a spotted wildcat species in Europe. Um, have not really seen any pictures of this. According to some of the sources I looked at, it looks very similar to an Asa cat. So we have talked about spotted cats before, and as you know, they are one of the type of tabbies, the other being the classic tabby and the mackerel tabby. Classic tabbies, of course, have kind of that butterfly across their hips, um, bigger wider swirls and, and coloration and the mackerel is more almost like a striped not like a tiger stripe that you think that's something completely different but for the longest time people who bred cats and geneticists really believed that spotted cats were simply broken mackerels or broken tabbies and the spots came about because the lines didn't come all the way up and meet well if you look at a lot of cats especially the aussie cat you can see their spots are pretty much lined up pretty 
straight, just like there was a line there. But now there is some research being done, and I couldn't tell you where it's being done at right now. I just found a few references to it. But there is some thought that there are some extra genes that play into how a tabby will be more of a mackerel or more of a spotted. And uh, hopefully we'll have some answers for that coming up in the next few years. But there certainly are some just amazingly good-looking spotted cats. And, of course, one of them is the Aussie cat. Now, these guys were completely an accident. Imagine that. And what happened was there was a Siamese breeder, and her name was Virginia Daly. She's up in Michigan, or was up in Michigan. And this was back in 1964. And what she was trying to do was create an Abyssinian point Siamese. Okay, so you can kind of kind of like a lynx point, or you've got just kind of that ticking in the points instead of all over the body. Well, when she had one litter of kittens, she then bred a chocolate point Siamese with a female that was a hybrid Abyssinian Siamese. And what happened during one litter was she got this ivory-colored kitten that had golden spots. Her daughter named the kitten Tonga, but unfortunately Tonga was neutered and then sold as a pet. Fortunately, somebody realized that Tonga was pretty special. I think he showed up at a couple cat shows. And they went back to Virginia, and she started doing some more breeding back to those same, from those same parents. And she was actually able to start producing several litters of spotted cats. Now, these guys were recognized in 1966, and they actually got their championship status in 1987. The American short-haired breed has also figured pretty predominantly in the development of the Ossicats, and that's important because of coloration. Now, when we talk about the colors of the Ossicat, you know, you normally just think of kind of a, a tabby cat that has that uh, brown and black. These Ossicats are absolutely gorgeous, and I would offer to you to go to ossicatinfo.com slash ossicolors2 htm that's a pretty long web address so certainly email me at tom at petliferadio.com if you've got any questions on that and i'll be happy to forward it to you via email but this aussiecatinfo.com site has um, information from the aussie cat breed council and they've got all 12 different colors pictures of a cat of each description on there and of course you can have tawny which is the typical I guess wild type that's your normal everything is pretty normal type cat they would equate to like a black cat then there's chocolates and then you've got the dilutions of the tawny and chocolate which are cinnamons and blues and then lavenders and fawns so all of these are going pretty much progressively lighter and whether or not they've got the red gene um, in there or not as well but because of american short hairs that were used in the background there is a silver gene now we haven't really talked about shaded silvers and, and tipped colors very much yet but there is a gene that inhibits color across the entire band of the hair shaft or the entire hair shaft itself. And these are our shaded silver type Persians, our chinchilla Persians that have just a little bit of color. And that's where the silver is coming from. And I tell you, these silver Aussie cats, I'm looking at an ebony silver right now, which is basically a tawny with silver markings. Just absolutely a gorgeous cat. Very, very pretty. And it's something that makes me kind of rethink a lot of times what kind of cats I want to get in the future. But these cats are very striking. They're large, athletic. They're 
very active animals, very short, tight coat, don't need a lot of grooming. People who have had them have told me they like to get into everything and the world is just a gymnasium to them. Nice thing about their personalities are they're very devoted to people. They're not very demanding though, which is kind of nice. In other words, people have said, or these breeders who called me said, they're very non-clingy. So unlike some of the cats we talked about that want to be underfoot all the time, these guys don't want to be underfoot. They just want to be near you. Very much extroverted, very bright, and supposedly very easily trained. Far as health, Aussie cats seem to be pretty healthy cats. They do come up with cleft palates on occasion. And of course, with Siamese in the background, we want to worry about some of the heart problems as well. So that's a little bit of a look at Aussie cats, which um, again, I get to looking at them and I'm thinking, man, maybe I want to get something else, something new. And maybe an Aussie cat's the way I want to go. <laughs> All right. We are going to move on to the Singapura, which has been known to be the smallest of all the CFA registered cats. Just a very small cat, generally only about four to five pounds. And the original story was that these guys originated in Singapore. And in Singapore, Singapura means Lion City in, in Malay. And Singapura is the name that the Singapore people call their city, Singapore. And so when this breed was first developed, they all believed they came from Singapore, and so Singapore seemed like an appropriate name. And the story is that there was a petroleum engineer who was stationed in Singapore. His name was Hal Meadow. And he and his wife, Tommy, brought home these three cats that were very striking. They looked like Abyssinians, but of a little bit different color. So they had that ticked, tabby look to them and they brought them back to the united states in 1975 and started breeding them and that's basically where the foundation stock came from um, a lot of brother to sister matings and mom to son matings and things like that which is very typical when you're trying to develop a breed but as the city of singapore wanted to highlight their tourist industry they decided that they wanted to take a look at these cats which they call the kusinta or drain cats that lived on the island and maybe promote them for tourism and as they got to looking back into their records they found that hal and tommy actually came into singapore in 1974 with cats and left in 1975 with cats so then there was this big question about oh my gosh did they actually breed them in the united states did they actually bring it in singapore but the bottom line basically was is this a naturally occurring cat or is it a cat that has been developed just like a lot of our other breeds? If you look at MessyBeast.com, they talk about the Singapore cat, the Singapura. And she basically says that if you go to Singapore, there are not that many of these type of cats running around. She said probably less than a tenth of a percent of these particular types of cats that have these markings are running around Singapore. And so it's probably not a naturally occurring cat. The other thing that backs that up is that there was a recent study, I think it was done in 2006, that looked at the genetics of about 600 and some cats, and it represented 38 breeds of cats. And they found that the Singapore and the Burmese cat were almost 100% genetically identical. There was almost no difference in them at all. Interestingly enough, Hal and Tommy Meadow had Burmese cats and Abyssinians as well. So we go back and forth, and actually there was a 
big discussion. The CFA had this big get-together back in the 90s, and they wanted to know Hal and Tommy's side of the story and everything. They opted to believe Hal and Tommy, and so they're still maintaining that this cat is a naturally occurring breed. But a lot of the genetic evidence right now is saying it's probably not. Regardless of whether it's a naturally occurring breed or whether it is a man-made breed, it is a very pretty cat. We've got that ticked coat pattern again, just like an Abyssinian, but it's got a very light beige coloring, kind of uh, light beige on ivory. They're very much smaller than the average breed and have eyes that are hazel green or yellow. One breeder told me that these are pesky people cats. In other words, they're very extroverted, very curious, and very playful and they don't know any strangers at all. As far as health problems, we look at these cats and they do have uterine inertia. Now, interestingly enough, one of the first cats that Hal and Tommy brought over with them, her name was Pusey. And interestingly enough, the other two that they had were Tess and Tickle. And I don't think I need to repeat all those names to see where Hal and Tommy's minds were at the time. Well, anyway, Pusey had uterine inertia. In other words, she could never go into labor on her own. And that is still a problem with some of the Singapura that we have. Now, this is a very small population of cats also. In 2006, I believe, the last um, census that I saw of Singapore, there were only 5,000 worldwide. So that's not very many cats at all and very very small gene pool in fact the same study that said that the singapura were very very almost identical to burmese cats say that they have among the 38 breeds studied the least genetic diversity of any of the breeds of cats out there so that's a, a big concern especially for health issues but so far they haven't come across with any now again you don't see singapores very often but so far they haven't come across any. These guys were finally recognized in 1982 and eligible for championship status in 1988. So they've only been around um, as far as in the shows for a little over 20 years now. The CFA also will go back and to put a little bit uh, more of the Hal and Tommy Meadows story to rest, they talk about Chico, who was a female Singapura found in the Singapore SPCA. And she was brought back and used in the breeding programs too. So their point is that even without the Hal and Tommy Meadow cats, there is a viable Singapore cat, naturally occurring Singapore cat, in all Singapura's backgrounds. So there shouldn't be any discussion about it at all. But again, you know, it goes into controversy and politics and all that kind of stuff. But very pretty cat, and I think it's something that uh, if you're looking for a cat, you're probably not going to find a breeder very easily of Singapore. But if you want a smaller cat, this might be the one for you. Well, hey, let's take a quick break. We are going to come back with some information from the Veterinary News Network. We'll talk about news that's happening, uh, cats in the news this week. And I've got some information about litter box problems do you have problems with inappropriate elimination in your household so we'll talk about that and i'll be right back after these words from our sponsor Ooh, do i hear a can being opened i believe i smell tuna catitude will return after these messages that should give me enough time to investigate what's going on in the kitchen don't have a hissy fit we'll be right back Molly, here's your dinner. <coughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. 
It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. How dare they open a can of tuna and make a sandwich out of it. I can see why some of my celebrity pals prefer lasagna. Well, anyway, I did manage to grab myself the canary while I was in there. Quiet, bird. We're going to hear the rest of my show, Catitude. If you behave, I may not eat you. Until later. Hmm. Okay, Tom, you may continue. And we're back again on the Catitude Channel. Thanks for hanging in here with us as we go through yet another couple breeds here, uh, learning about cats. And I wanted to just kind of focus one more thing on Singapore's as well. And my point on the Singapore is basically there's always two sides to every story. And so you can get a lot of information. That's the wonderful thing about the Internet here. If you're careful, you can get information and kind of make up your own mind. Hal and Tommy Meadows did put up a website. Um, Unfortunately, I think they're both deceased now. I know Tommy is. I'm not sure about Hal. But they did put up a website saying their side of the story as far as how the singapore came about evidently hal sent home some cats in 1971 three years before they actually went out there and because he was on a secret assignment and couldn't tell anybody where he was and of course they were trying to maintain that secrecy um and then the grandchildren of that cat of those cats came back to them to singapore during that time frame anyway you can look this up online and i'd be happy to give you that information but there's also the opposite um, viewpoint too uh saying that these guys were definitely developed as burmese abyssinian crosses and they give all this information showing that you know tommy had spent time breeding rats and mice and all these different strains and she was pretty accomplished at that kind of thing whether it's true or not it doesn't matter they're neat little cats um but you know if you are somebody who fancies purebred cats and you really need to know about it be happy to send that information to you just email me at tom at petliferadio.com all right i promised you a little bit of interesting cat news we did talk about the catalyst council announcing the top 10 cat cities in the united states but did you hear about this not a domestic cat but a bobcat walks into a bar in arizona now before you wonder if this is a joke um it certainly is not the bobcat walked into a bar scratched and bit several people i think it was three or four at last count one guy was bitten on the face i'm not sure how that happened bobcats aren't quite that big well the bobcat ended up being rabid so all these people of course are going to have to undergo rabies treatments rabies prophylactic vaccines which is unfortunate for them but you definitely want to do that because we all know that rabies is not curable with the exception of two instances now here one in the united states and one in brazil so bobcat walks into a bar not a joke it actually happened and bobcat had rabies We also found out today that Alabama is now considering mandatory spay-neutering for dogs and cats over six months old. And we've talked about this on the show before. You know, I think that 
spaying and neutering your pet is a good thing. It probably should be done in most instances. But what I have a problem with is the government telling me to do this. And the Humane Society of the United States has a big agenda here. They're basically going state by state and seeing where they can get these laws passed. And so far, they've not been that successful except in a few local communities, a few smaller cities. And, uh, of course, L.A. did it, um, which, interestingly enough, they then dropped their program for free spay and subsidized neuters for public uh, members who for pet owners who can't afford it. Uh, I think that was rescinded though and they actually put the program back into place. I'll have to look that up and find that out for you. But let's keep in mind here the Humane Society of the United States does have an agenda. They do not own or operate any shelters. And while they do a lot of very good work, while they do promote animal welfare and try to get us from stopping killing baby seals and killing the gorillas and things like that. I think that's all wonderful. Their overriding agenda in all this is they would like to see no animals used for people whatsoever. And now, does that sound a lot like PETA? It really does, doesn't it? And, you know, PETA and the Humane Society of the United States are closely allied right now. And at any time, I'd be happy to send you quotes from their leadership, which has said they will not rest until there are no more pets owned in the United States or really throughout the world. Ingrid Newkirk, who is the leader of PETA, has basically said she would like to see animals in the wild, just like there are in third world developing countries with no help from us, you know, no help, no hindrance or whatever. And while I understand her motives, I think that we're a little bit beyond uh, letting that happen. And I certainly don't want to give up my right to own a pet. And that's what a lot of these breeder legislation laws and mandatory spay-neuter laws, that's the underlying reason for this. Wayne Passell, the leader of the Humane Society of the United States, has basically said, if we can get these passed state by state, it's going to be one generation and out, no more pets. And to me, that is just absolutely horrendous. I cannot think of a worse thing in my life than not having a pet around. Well, that's just my opinion, and I'm up on the soapbox. I did promise I would talk about um, some other things from the Veterinary News Network. Here's a kind of a neat thing that came across. Uh, behaviorist Dr. Jacqueline Nielsen has had an article in a recent issue of Veterinary Medicine Magazine talking about house soiling in cats and how you can use normal cat behavior to help solve these litter box problems. And I think just about every cat owner at one point in time or another, if they've had multiple cats, has run across this. One cat has decided that they don't want to use the litter box for whatever reason. So we call it inappropriate elimination. Now, we all love our cats. We definitely think they are the perfect pet. And we love their sense of independence. But one thing that they do, this behavioral problem that they have of house soiling, is one of the leading reasons that people will give up their pets, their cats. Some people will give them up to the Humane Society or to an animal shelter. As I mentioned earlier, some people just decide they're going to let them loose outside, take care of yourself outside, and I'll throw you some food every once in a while. Other people will even euthanize their pet, and believe me, at the animal hospitals that I've worked at, a convenience euthanasia was not an uncommon occurrence. Um, you know, you've got a cat who's peeing in the corner. The owner swears that they've done everything to make the cat stop, and um, they just want the cat put down. And it's a young, you know, seven or eight-year-old healthy cat. And just it's a very, very unfortunate thing when that happens. A lot of veterinarians have even moved away from offering that kind of service. But the sad thing is... Somebody will end up doing it, and if nobody does, then the pet owner tries to take the matter into their own hands and euthanize the cat themselves, and that is never pretty, never pretty at all. 
Well, let's talk about why this happens. House soiling happens, one, because of primary medical diseases that might affect how often or the quantity of urination or the urgency, the urge to go. So if the cat isn't feeling well, has a feline lower urinary tract disease, then it's quite possible that they're not going to make it to the litter box and they're going to go elsewhere. They're going to find some other place to go. Other reasons are behavioral, like urine marking. A lot of cats will do that territorially, even despite the fact that they've been neutered. And the final one, of course, is litter box issues, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Just so you know also, these are not mutually exclusive. You can have a cat who's sick with a urinary tract infection and become averse to their litter box for some reason, the litter that you're using in there. That happens on occasion too. Whatever the reason, before you make any decisions on doing something with your pet, a thorough physical examination is essential by a veterinarian, and you need to give your veterinarian a good history of what's going on with your cat so that he or she can figure out, is this really a behavioral problem? Is this a medical problem? And what can we do to make sure that it goes away? Now, cats will reject their litter box for many reasons. We all know that they don't maybe like all types of litter, and we're going to talk about how you can pick the right type of litter for your cat. But think about these other things, too. Um, how many cats do you have in your household? I get this all the time in questions both on PetDocsOnCall.com. I get it in the veterinary hospital. And, of course, I get it on my email here, too. You know, how many litter boxes should I have? And a general rule of thumb is you need one litter box per cat plus one. So for my Vulcan who's just one cat in the household, I have two litter boxes, one upstairs, one downstairs, and do not have any kind of problem at all with him. Now, you know, he's only one cat. He's a very big cat, but he's only one cat. But I've also had, you know, six and seven cats in my households before, and I've always stuck to that rule, and 99% of the time, I do not run into any kind of problems. You also have to think about where you're placing the litter box, because that can really impact whether or not the cat will use it. Think about this. If you've got the litter box in the laundry room and the spin cycle goes off while the cat is in the litter box and starts thumping because the load's not balanced, that's going to scare the cat and they may not want to go back to that litter box. Same thing if you put the litter box next to the kennel of the dog. You've got the dog kenneled up during the day. The cat may very well not want to go in that litter box at that point in time. So you got to think about those things. Do you have an older cat who's arthritic and all of your litter boxes are upstairs? Maybe you need to think about keeping one downstairs as well. Now, we can use the evolution of the cat to help find what's going to be the perfect litter box and litter for them. And our cat's ancestral species developed a preference for using desert sand because they were desert creatures, and that's where they would eliminate and hide it. And this preference has definitely persisted because we find that most cats are going to prefer a finely granular sand-like material. And so that's why... Back in the early 1990s, late 1980s, you started seeing all of these clumpable litters start showing up instead of the coarser clay litter that we were all used to before because they found that cats like that really fine, granular texture. Now, you can get litter made out of all sorts of things, whether it's clay, corn, wheat, paper, anything like that. What you've got to keep in mind is you've got to find one that the cat likes, that they like the texture of, that provides good odor control and, of course, minimizes dust because all those things can take a cat away from using their litter box. Some people like to buy litters that have fragrances added to them, and that certainly is not a bad thing. 
And for a long time, they didn't know what did cats like and what didn't they like. Well, what they don't like now, they have done a couple studies, and we know that they don't like citrus scents. So definitely all these new citrus scent litters that are on the market, stay away from them. They're not going to work very well and are actually somewhat aversive for cats. They are attracted to fish odors, cedar, and bleach scents, with cedar being the best one. Now, if you've got a kitty and you're using one of these scented litters and the cat decides not to use the litter box, you can try switching to an unscented litter before taking the cat in. But of course, don't wait too long because some of these medical conditions can be pretty serious. Also, we want to look at how do odor control mechanisms work in litter. And they did a couple studies again and found that litters with activated charcoal were preferred by cats than litters with sodium bicarbonate. So you can certainly look at the labeling and of course the things like the Arm & Hammer one that's going to have more baking soda in and things like that. That's probably not going to work quite as well as the activated charcoal litters, at least according to these studies. How about the size of the litter box? Well, Bigger is definitely better. Although cats will use smaller litter boxes, um, there used to be a rule of thumb of one and a half times the length of the cat. That's probably not quite as important, but it's definitely the biggest one that you want to get. And probably the most important thing that people just completely forget about is to keep your cat happy with their litter box, which is you know their place where they go to the bathroom, is scoop the box daily. Wash it on occasion, routinely, maybe every couple months, to help reduce any residual odors. And you'll find that your cat will probably do pretty well, provided they don't have any kind of medical problems. So get a clumping litter with activated carbon. If you're going to get one that has a fragrance, consider cedar and scoop it daily. That's a very, very important thing. Now, if they do decide that they're going to stop using the box for some reason and they start uh, urinating elsewhere, make sure you use a good enzyme acting stain and odor remover. Something like Nature's Miracle or Equalizer. Those can actually break down the urine odor so the cat's not attracted back to that area. Don't try to mask it with vinegar or anything like that. The cat's just going to keep coming back to that area. All right. Well, I think I'm kind of losing my voice here. I hate to say that, but uh, we are at the end of our time. And as always, I've had a wonderful time. If you have any questions health related for your cat or anything that you've heard here at Pet Life Radio, please feel free to email me at tom at petliferadio.com. Tom at petliferadio.com. I'd be happy to help you out. Now, keep in mind, I am not a veterinarian, but I do have access to about 350 of the most wonderful caring veterinarians in the world through the Veterinary News Network. And of course, our good friend over at the pet doctor here on Pet Life Radio, Dr. Bernadine Cruz. And I hope that you'll stop by and listen to her show on occasion as well. If you need some pet advice and uh, you've got a little bit of time on your hands and want to explore a little bit, certainly stop by www.petdocsoncall.com. That's P-E-T-D-O-C-S oncall.com. This is a brand new website that I think you're going to like. We've got veterinarians who will answer a question for you. We're developing a nice pet community where people can post pictures, where you can talk about your pets. There's animal news on there if you want to learn about the mandatory spay-neuter requirements that are going on that I mentioned earlier. Uh, We've got things for zoo animals and wild animals, endangered animals, all sorts of good threads going on there so please stop by petdocsoncall.com and you can also stop by my favorite place myvnn.com for the most up-to-date and accurate pet health information so for this week this is tom saying so long take care of those kitties and we'll see you next time here on the catitude channel at pet life radio bye bye for now 
Want to know what cats like to eat for breakfast? Mice Krispies, of course. Learn everything there is to know about cats on Catitude with your host, Tom Dock. Each week, we'll spotlight a cool cat breed, give up-to-date advice on cat health, and check out spiffy new cat products. So curl up on the couch every week for a perfectly enjoyable time on Catitude. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.